นะโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะมะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตรังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิการเมืองเย็นอ่าวเ
uh, in the latter years of his life had chronic back pain. And there was numerous times in the teachings where uh, he's uh, sitting on the Dhamma seat giving a, a teaching to a, an assembly like this and uh, he'll turn to Venerable Ananda or Venerable Sariputta or Mahakachana or Mogalana, Mahakotita and say, uh, my, uh, my back is paining me, the, the assembly is still wide awake and uh, e eager for listening to Dhamma teachings. Um, please, uh, uh, Sariputta or Ananda or Mahakachana, please uh, carry on giving a Dhamma talk to the community. I'm going to go and lie down and stretch my back. So I feel this is a very, um, very significant, these kind of little practical details that you come across in the, uh, in the suttas. And uh, I feel there's a very powerful uh, ring of truth to, to such comments that uh, even though the Buddha was fully enlightened, he was a, a fully uh, self-awakened Buddha, still... There was a body, and the body could produce pain and uh, and aches in old age, and and also that he was ready to take steps to to uh, ameliorate that, to to reduce the the diff discomfort, and um, to uh, to work with, with that, and uh, so that when we talk about the ending of suffering, it doesn't mean the ending of discomfort, or um, it doesn't mean that everyone will like us, <laughs> or all of our traffic lights will go green, and we'll always find a parking place. <laughs> doesn't mean that uh, uh, everyone in the classroom will like us and all our exams will come out back you know, 10 out of 10, 100%. <laughs> but it means that we will know how not to make a problem out of what life presents to us, whether it's... Uh, if, if I could ask people to put their phones down and cameras down just to uh, pay attention to the, the teaching rather than trying to record it. Everything's being recorded already, so <laughs> respectfully I'd put your... Put your cameras and phones away. Thank you very much. So, the uh, uh, in the the, uh, the southern Buddhist world, this uh, this day, the full moon day of May, uh, and uh, the significance of this date is that this is taken as the time where uh, the Bodhisattva was born uh, in uh, in uh, Lumbini, which is now in the country of Nepal. Uh, and then uh, also uh, 35 years later, it celebrates the time of the Buddha's full and complete enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in Budgaya. And then 45 years after that, it is also taken to be the, the date on which uh, the, uh, the Parinibbana took place, the final passing away uh, of the Lord Buddha occurred. And all these events, these significant uh, events, the birth, enlightenment, and uh, final passing away, are all taken to have occurred on the full moon day of May in these various years of the, the Buddha's life. Whether they did or not, or you know, historians and scholars can uh, can discuss and argue and debate. Uh, but uh, there's a, I feel, an important symbolism that all these events are gathered together and recollected on this one uh, full moon day, and that this is a, a powerful and important uh, occasion for us. There are many different aspects to each of these uh, these events, and uh, you know, just, uh, within the scope of one Dhamma talk, it's not possible to to cover all of them. But uh, uh, one of the uh, the aspects of it that I, I feel is uh, uh, very helpful to recollect is the Buddha's own comments 
on how to celebrate, uh, how to rejoice in uh, these, uh, these, say, the presence of the teaching and the the, uh, the possibility of practicing dhamma and the, pra- the possibility of realizing full and complete liberation. Uh, how best to rejoice, to celebrate, to express our, our gratitude. At the time of the Parinibbana, this took place in uh, Kusinara, which was a as it was said, a little wattle and daub village, a, little, a tiny little insignificant uh, place uh, off in the, the back country, uh, up in uh, Himachal Pradesh, I believe, uh, nowadays. Uh, the Indian states, uh, uh, their boundaries change and they get divided up and renamed, but I think um, Kusinara is in Himachal Pradesh in northern India. Uh, so the, uh, the Buddha had journeyed there and uh, had chosen that place to uh, uh, to be where the Parinibbana would take place. And uh, the full moon of May had come, and uh, he was lying down on the folded robes uh, under the sala trees in the forest outside of the village of Kusinara. And uh, as uh, Venerable Ananda describes the, the scene, he's very inspired, very uh, amazed and uh, in a state of, of awe and wonderment at uh, what was what was happening as the, the the Buddha's life in the human realm was was coming to an end, uh, as the Buddha was was lying there uh, on the folded robes under the sala trees, then uh, the, those those trees, the sala trees, uh, burst into flower. Even though it wasn't the season for the sala trees to be blossoming, uh, like right now it's springtime in England, so you have the the cherry trees are blossom, you have apple blossom, you have may, may blossom in the hedges. Uh, so the sala trees were blossoming in that forest outside of Kusinara, but it wasn't, it wasn't their season. It was usually a different time of the year that they, they came into flower. And so the, uh, uh, this was quite extraordinary in and of itself. Also, there were flowers raining down from the heavenly realms, what they call Mandarava flowers, were appearing out of the sky and, and, and drifting down through the forest and falling in, into the, the glade of the, the forest at Kusinara all around the Buddha. Also the music from the Gandavas, the, the celestial musicians you could hear in the air, the, this sort of uh, beautiful divine music uh, filling the air from invisible uh, music, musicians, uh, the Gandavas um, in the uh, in the heavenly realm, playing the the music uh, and as a acknowledging this uh, great and powerful significant event of the the uh, the parinibbana, and uh, also all around many many devas and brahmas as well as uh, many uh, sang- uh, sangha members and lay people had gathered there in the forest all around. So Ananda is amazed and inspired and, and, and so in awe of this. And he says, this is amazing, this is incredible, Venerable Sir. Yeah, never before uh, has the, the Tathagata been so honored, so revered, has such reverence been, been demonstrated. You know, the, the Mandarava flowers are raining down from the sky and the Sala trees have burst into bloom out of their season. And the, there's all sorts of Brahmas and Devas gathered around you know, in their tens, tens of thousands and millions and Many uh, Sangha members, monastics, and lay people are gathered here. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is wonderful. How, uh, how abundantly and beautifully um, the uh, the Tathagata is being uh, honoured, respected, and revered. 
And the Buddha says, yes, indeed, Ananda, never before has the, the, the Tathagata, the, the Buddha, been, uh, uh, say, so honored, so revered, so, uh, uh, say, such um, say, devotion uh, has been shown. But if you really want to show devotion and reverence and, and respect to the Tathagata, then the way to do that is to practice the Eightfold Path. That's the best way of, uh, of honoring, respecting, and revering. Demonstrating your, your devotion is to practice the, the, uh, the teaching that the, the, the Tathagata has been giving. So uh, as I, I like to bring this up frequently, frequently on these festival days, it's rather like if you're a school teacher, the way that the a pupil uh, best demonstrates their, their, their love and respect for the teacher is not just to give an apple to the teacher <laughs> or to give them a nice birthday card, but it's to actually follow the teacher's uh, guidance and learn the lessons that the teacher is giving them. So that's what the, the Buddha uh, uh, underscores for uh, Venerable Ananda, that the the best way to demonstrate your devotion, your gratitude, your reverence is to do what I say, <laughs> to follow the path that I, I've been describing. And uh, similarly, uh, in a, a, a different time, much earlier in the Buddha's life, there was another exchange I was recollecting uh, yesterday, uh, that uh, the, um, the community was gathered together. The Buddha wasn't present. It was just Ananda and a group of monks gathered together. And Ananda was talking to this, this smaller group of monks about the events around the, the birth of the Bodhisattva, the beginning of the Buddha's life. Uh, and Ananda recounts this, this long list of extraordinary, amazing, uh, wonderful and marvelous uh, uh, characteristics of the, the Buddha's birth. And he point, yeah, he, so he described how um, the uh, uh, Queen Mahamaya, on the, the night that the, the Buddha was conceived, she had this dream of a white elephant entering into the side of her body, with a, a white elephant with six tusks. Um, this is a wonderful and marvelous uh, event in the, the Buddha's uh, coming into being. And while she was pregnant with, with him, uh, she didn't feel any kind of discomfort. Uh, and her mind became naturally pure, so she uh, she was uh, inclined towards uh, peacefulness, to calmness, to clarity, and sense restraint uh, came completely naturally to to her during the time of her pregnancy. When uh, the uh, the Bodhisattva was was about to be born, then he was born in the forest in in. Uh, uh, in Lumbini, and he was born standing up. His mother, Queen Mahamaya, was holding onto the branch of a of a tree when he was born. So he was very unusually born with the mother standing up. And when she gave uh, birth to to the Bodhisattva, then it, devas appeared to catch the the baby, receive the, the baby. And when he was when he was born, so invisible beings vis beings that were not visible to the other folks around, you know, caught the caught the baby as he appeared, and then uh, cooled and warm jets of water also manifested from the, from the air around uh, to, and uh, was there to wash and cleanse the, the baby uh, after, after he was born. And after each of these statements, Ananda said, this is a wonderful, marvelous quality of the, the Tathagata. Then after he was born, uh, and uh, uh, amazingly, he was able to stand and walk. And so then uh, it said that he, uh, the, the, the newly born Bodhisattva, immediately after birth, took seven steps, and then lotus flowers appeared under each footstep. 
So, uh, uh, which is also incredible because lotus flowers only grow in water. <laughs> so, since he was walking on the ground, it was yeah, uh, even more amazing that uh, lotus blossoms appeared under his feet, but according to the stories, they did. And uh, he walked seven, seven paces and then raised his hand in the air and then spoke, which again, just after birth, is not usually what happens with human babies. <laughs> and said, I am the leader in the world. I am the foremost in the world. So the people who are gathered around, and especially uh, uh, Queen Mahamaya, must have realized this is a very unusual child. <laughs> not difficult to guess, like this is not an ordinary baby. This is something very, very special indeed. And then at the end of that description, then Ananda again said, this is a wonderful, marvelous quality of the Tathagata. So at this point, the Buddha shows up in the, in the Dhamma hall, and the, the, people, the, the conversation stops, you know, the master has arrived, and so everyone goes quiet. And then the Buddha, as he, he always says in these um, situations, uh, what was it that you were talking about? What was the conversation that was interrupted uh, when, I, when I appeared? Uh, and then Ananda, who had perfect recall, then re, uh, recited the entire um, description that he'd given to the, to the other uh, small collection of monks. And at the end of that, that re recounting, then uh, the Buddha said, would you like to hear of another wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata? And it's one of those sort of slight, somewhat humorous moments in the Pali Canon. It's not, you don't find many kind of jokes being cracked <laughs> in the texts of the Pali Canon, but there are these sort of witty or, or sort of uh, uh, humorous exchanges. And you can almost feel the Buddha saying, uh, say, saying this and then, a group of monks saying, oh yes, this is going to get really interesting, wow. You know, what Ananda was saying was powerful and amazing enough, and now we're really, get, really going to get some interesting stuff. That's the, the, the hint or the suggestion. Would you like to hear of another wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata? Oh yes, Venerable Sir, please. And then uh, what he says is, when a feeling arises in the mind of the Tathagata, he knows this is a feeling arising. The feeling abides in the mind of, a, of the Tathagata. He knows this feeling is abiding in the mind. When a feeling fades away in the mind of the Tathagata, he knows this feeling is fading away. Uh, this, is, this too is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Then when a, a, uh, uh, a perception arises in the mind of the Tathagata, as it, as it abides, as it fades away, this is known as uh, a perception arising, abiding, passing away. This too is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. When a thought uh, arises in the mind, as it abides in the mind, as it fades away, then the Tathagata knows this is a thought arising and abiding and fading away. This too is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the, the, the Tathagata. So just as he did the Parinibbana earlier on, he had the same kind of way of taking Venerable Ananda's enthusiasm and excitement and, uh, and Ananda's more sort of worldly perspective and <laughs> changing the, the point of view, changing the, the appreciation and saying, yeah, maybe uh, being able to walk and talk as soon as you're born, that's, that's kind of impressive. But what's really impressive, what's really amazing is that we can watch our minds that's what, that's what makes a difference. You know, walking and talking as soon as you're born and lotus flowers popping up under your feet as you walk along. Okay, that's unusual, but not that helpful. <laughs> Treading on, on lotus flowers everywhere you walk. It's, you know, it's colorful, but it <laughs> doesn't really change, the, uh, change your life in a, in a particularly beneficial way. 
But what is able to change our lives in a beneficial way is that we can watch our, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations. We can know uh, a, a delicious taste arising and passing. We can know a, a, a disgusting taste arising and passing. A painful feeling in the body, we can notice that arising and passing. Uh, a, uh, an exciting thought, an, ex uh, an emotion, we can notice that arising and abiding and passing away. Uh, a worrying thought, um, an anxious thought, we can notice that arising, abiding and passing away. And uh, that is a fantastic and wonderful power that all of us have, that each of us have. And again, the Buddha was emphasizing th th what really is marvelous, what's worthy of celebrating, what's worthy of, of appreciating as wonderful and marvelous is we have the capacity to watch this mind and not to be stressed or burdened or limited by that. We can know this life and not be limited or, or burdened or stressed by this life. Wow! That is wonderful and marvelous. <laughs> and uh, as I was saying uh, yesterday when I was talking about this, uh, when uh, Lumpur Sumato retired and, and I was uh, invited to, to stay in the kuti that he'd been living in, the little cottage that Lumpur had been living in for the last 25 years, uh, I inherited uh, quite a number of his books in, uh, in his copy of the, the book called The Life of the Buddha by Venerable Nyanamoli, the, the one passage that was highlighted with, like, with purple, <laughs> purple felt pen in, in, the, in that book was this passage from the, the Sutta of the Wonderful and Marvelous and, uh, the, about being able to uh, watch the, the arising and passing of feelings, of perceptions, and of thoughts. So the Lumpur Sumedha <laughs> highlighted that as, this is really significant, this is particularly worthy of, of recollection and, and attention. So another aspect of this I feel that, uh, we, that we inherit from our teachers and when we, we talk about the Buddha uh, who lived and walked and talked uh, 2,600 years ago or so, uh, that uh, that is how we think of the Buddha as this, the, this great being, this, this uh, extraordinary entity who came into the world and, and uh, lived so long ago, 26 centuries ago. You know, when the Buddha was, was uh, teaching in India, it was still the Iron Age here in southern England. It wasn't even... It was 400 years before the Romans arrived. <laughs> it was way in the prehistoric era. It was literally the, the middle of the Iron Age in England. Uh, or it, there wasn't even an England then. It didn't have that name. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a long, long time ago. So we think, oh, the Buddha was this great sage, this wonderful enlightened being who lived long, long ago. But uh, Lumpur Cha uh, and uh, a number of the other forest ajans uh, in Thailand, they would emphasize that, uh, well, when we use the word Buddha, or we talk about the Buddha refuge, in one respect we're talking about the Gautama Buddha who lived and taught you know, 26 centuries ago and who was the founder of this religion and who bestowed uh, the 84,000 sections of Dhamma teaching. Yes, that we can talk about that uh, as the Buddha. But uh, Lumpur Cha would emphasize the Buddha, which is the refuge, you know, is something much more immediate, something much more accessible, not just the, the, a statue uh, depicting a, a being from ancient times or an idea, a, a, a historical uh, say, description or a story, uh, stories about the life of that great sage, but rather he would say a refuge is a safe place. 
It's an actual shelter. It's something that keeps the, the, the sun and the rain off you. It's something that, that protects your life. It's something that is practical and, and immediately available. Otherwise, it's not really a refuge. And he would tend to turn to the say to the Buddha Rupa and say that that's a statue. It's not a refuge. <laughs> it's just a, a piece of metal or a piece of stone or a piece of wood. It's that that can't protect you. Um, the idea in the mind of the the Buddha or the stories of the Buddha, those those stories, those the historical records, they can't protect. What can protect is the the puru in the Thai language. The that. Uh, quality of awareness, the one who knows, that quality of knowing of the heart, uh, that is the genuine refuge. So that uh, this is how Lumpur Cha would uh, very, very often talk about the Buddha and say, you know, the Buddha hasn't, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's, the Buddha is alive today. That's why the Buddha is a refuge. Uh, he, he hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't fled anywhere. The Buddha is absolutely present because the Buddha, which is the refuge, is that very quality, uh, that capacity to be awake, to be aware, to know, the puru, the, the tat ru, the, the element of, uh, of knowing, the vijadhatu, uh, that capacity to be awake, to be aware, to know, that is available to every single one of us, whether, we're, uh, whether we are uh, uh, someone who's been a Buddhist practitioner for 30, 40, 50 years, or we're, we're 70, 80 years old, or whether we're you know, one year old, or <laughs> just born a few weeks ago, that, that capacity, I would say, is, is exactly the same. And it's functioning uh, through the, the vehicle of our separate lives, whether we're just a, a few weeks or a few months old, or five years old, 10 years old, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 90 years old. That capacity to be awake and to be aware, it, it functions in exactly the same way uh, in the, through the medium of our, our lives. And Buddhist practice uh, is, and taking refuge in the Buddha, uh, is essentially uh, uh, recognizing that capacity to be awake and using it, embodying uh, that a capacity to be aware, to be mindful, to be wise and to be mindful. To know the arising and passing away of, uh, of feelings, of perceptions, of thoughts, of emotions. Uh, that quality that knows the uh, arising and passing uh, of all things. That knowing is the uh, uh, what the Buddha says. He uh, talks about in his own life as the Tathagata, I would say, uh, insight meditation, vipassana meditation, is uh, precisely designed to help that quality to be strengthened, to be clarified, to be freed of any kind of obstruction, to help that that awake, aware quality to know this moment, like knowing the perceptions of being here in the temple at Amaravati on the evening of uh, Visakha Puja, the Saturday uh, evening in the early June in uh, Hertfordshire, in uh, Amravati Monastery, seeing uh, the the other people gathered around, seeing the shrine and the, the flowers and the decorations, all of the beautiful lights that have been lit, hearing the sound of, of my voice, feeling the sensations in your body, that quality of, uh, of awareness that knows the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the color and texture of this moment, that... Uh, when it's freed of all obstructions, freed of all obscurations and distortions, that is the the vijadhatu, the uh, element of of knowing. That is the puru, the uh, the one who knows that awakened awareness. 
that is the refuge. So whether that awareness knows comfort or discomfort, it doesn't have to be attached or limited by that. If it knows uh, something that's a, a pleasing color or an unpleasing color, a, a pleasing sound or an unpleasing sound, uh, a delicious taste or, or an awful taste, that uh, awareness in itself is uh, undistorted, unchanged. That is something that the heart can embody and can can uh, abide in. And that is the, the way to freedom. And those of you who've been listening to Lumpur Sumato's talks over the last number of months and years will know he, this is pretty much the theme of every single Dhamma talk <laughs> that Lumpur Sumato gives uh, these days, is that uh, this quality of awakened awareness. This is the refuge, this is the escape hatch, this is the, the most precious quality each and every one of us have. And even if you think, have the thought, when you hear these words, oh, not me, Ajahn, oh, I'm so confused. Yeah, if you knew my mind, you, you, you'd know, I, 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 I didn't get one of those when I was born. <laughs> they left me out. That, that which knows that thought, oh, I didn't get one of those, <laughs> that, that which knows that thought, that's the refuge. That, that which knows confusion is not confused. That which knows self-criticism is not, is not critical. It knows those attitudes, those thoughts, but it's not limited by those. It's not identified with those. In a similar, a similar vein, uh, when uh, Lumpur Sumedha would, would, uh, would be teaching uh, as he did, as he does now, and many, many years ago, uh, he would emphasize how it's very easy for us to think. We, we pick up Buddhist practice, or we're inspired by the teachings. We can easily think, I'm an unenlightened person, and I've got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future. And you might hear those words, and many of us have heard those words, or had those, seen that in the teachings many, many times. You think, well, yes, that's right. I am an unenlightened person, <laughs> and I have got a lot to do in, in order to become an enlightened person in the future. And we might say, well, that, isn't that the whole background to the Dhamma teaching, the, the, the many, many lives, the countless numbers of lives as, as say, told uh, in the, the Jataka stories, the previous lives of the Buddha, and he was spending all those lifetimes developing the ten parameters the, uh, of generosity and, and virtue and honesty and truthfulness and resolution and patience and uh, equanimity and so forth. Like, Yeah, he was, wasn't that what the Buddha was doing? That he made this aditana, this resolution that uh, he would work to develop all the ten parameters until uh, he had realized Buddhahood in the future. So isn't that the case that we're trying to we're not enlightened now, and we've got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future. Isn't that the program? <laughs> but uh, what the Lumpur Sumedha would very helpfully point out, and, and hopefully uh, those of us who are gathered here this evening can appreciate this, he would say, yes, that's, that's got a validity, that's true on a worldly level, but it, uh, if we take that as an absolute truth, you know, I am an unenlightened person, that's what I am. <laughs> so, we're starting from the place of self-view, where we're starting from ignorance, that we're establishing the mind in wrong view. Uh, because uh, if we look at the, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha, we apply uh, the wisdom teachings that come from insight meditation, from vipassana meditation. One of the very first 
insights or the most important insights that arise with the development of vipassana, insight, is the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, uh, sense consciousness is not self. So that uh, if the body is not self, feelings are not self, <laughs> then to say I am an unenlightened person is starting from wrong view. That the, the, that which knows the person isn't a person. Uh, that awakened awareness is not personal. And so that uh, he would emphasize that, yes, on a worldly level, we can say, I'm an unenlightened person. But from the, uh, uh, say, the locutora, from a transcendent or from a, uh, from a more true and accurate perspective, uh, then uh, he would say, rather than making that framework of I'm a, an, un, an unenlightened person who's got to do something now to be an enlightened in the future, so be awake now. That's the... Uh, be awake now. And don't be an awake person, but rather uh, embody that quality of wakeful awareness that knows the personal qualities of this body, these thoughts, these feelings, these perceptions arising and passing away. So it's rather like... Uh, uh, the example I like to give is like with the world. Like right now we can say, oh, the sun has set, it's evening, dusk is coming on, and we'll be having the the Vientian, the circumambulation, the uh, candlelit circumambulation in a little while. So we say, oh, the sun rises in the morning, it sets in the evening. The full moon is about to arise in the in the evening, and it'll set early tomorrow morning. But yes, from the from the position of the surface of the earth, that's what's happening. The, we see the sun rising in the east every day and setting in the west every day. But uh, that's because we're sitting on the surface of the earth. If we were up in space, we would see, no, the, the sun is staying still and the earth is spinning. Uh, so that it, the sun is not really arising and setting. The sun is just where it is. It appears to arise uh, and to, to rise and to set because of the attachment to the spinning earth. If that makes sense to everyone? Uh, if we let go of the earth, let go of the world, and uh, we, we can see that oh, the sun is just where it is, and that it's the, the spinning of the earth that makes the sun appear to, to rise and set. So that um, this, I feel, is a good way of illustrating how if we change the view, change the, the paradigm, as Lumpur Sumaita would put it, that uh, we let go of attachment to the body, the personality, to what we think of as as, as ourselves, as who and what we are, and that the mind instead takes the position of wisdom, of awareness. That in that analogy of the the solar system, it takes the position of the sun. The sun is just where it is. It's just uh, at the center, and it knows the the turning of the earth and the, the circulation of the planets but it's not affected by those. It's not shaken or disturbed or, or, or limited by that. So what this means in, in practical terms, if we, if we follow that advice and, and if we really take refuge in the Buddha, as uh, Lumpur Chao is describing, or, and as Lumpur Sumato similarly is describing, then what that means is that the heart is established in that awake, aware quality, and we and there's a watching, a knowing, of of like and dislike, comfort and discomfort, uh, uh, success and failure, coming and going and changing, 
there's the, the five khandhas of the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, the, the perceptions of the, the material world coming and going and changing. But there's a, a non-attachment, a non-entanglement, a non-grasping. The, the heart knows the world but is not attached to the world, is not limited by the world. The, the, the heart that knows, liking and disliking, success and failure, comfort and discomfort, it knows those qualities, it's aware of them, is attuned to them, but it is not limited by those. It, the, so again, using the life of the Buddha as a, um, an example, the Buddha was known as the Lokavidu, the, uh, the knower of the world. Uh, Lokavidu, he was Lokutra, above the world. So he, he knew the world, he was, uh, but he, uh, he transcended the world. And so that same Buddha quality, that puru, that awakened awareness of the, the heart, the more that we use the meditation, the practice, the precepts to uh, embody, to strengthen that quality, to really live from that place, then similarly we can, fi we can find that place where we are uh, attuned to the world. We know the world, but we're not limited by the world. I realize this is a, a hard to, can be hard to understand. Say, yeah, but I am a person. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I, yeah, I'm I'm six years older. I'm twenty six years older. I'm I'm fifty eight. I am fifty eight. I am eighty three. That's this is what I am. <laughs> and that say yes on a worldly level. Yes, the sun does rise at that time. It's summertime. The sun is rising early in the morning. Yes, <laughs> there's a time that we can say the sun rises, but. If you leave the surface of the earth and you're off in space, you realize, oh, <laughs> there isn't a sunrise uh, up here. Uh, it's only because of that position. That's why we say there's a sunrise at a particular time. Aha! So that change of view, that change of perspective, that's why we practice meditation, that's why we develop insight. So we can see this life of ours, this body, this mind, this personality, from a different perspective from a different point of view. It can be hard to understand, hard to get the, the mind around, but I do feel if we really want to say uh, rejoice in the Buddha's teaching and that uh, to say, uh, say, uh, use uh, the, the traditions, the customs, the, the teachings that have come down to us, rather than just dwelling on the ways of celebrating it, it's very beautiful to have all these lovely flowers that have been offered and all the, the lights that are prepared and the flags that are hung and an incredible amount of incredible amount of work and care that's going into uh, developing these uh, ways of expressing our devotion and our uh, our love for the buddha our gratitude for the for the buddha and his teaching uh, i would say as the the buddha himself described to ananda the the way to really express your gratitude is to <laughs> to follow the teachings, to embody the, the, uh, the Eightfold Path. And at the very heart of that is this capacity to be awake, to be aware. And that uh, that is very much the spirit of, of this place. Amravati means the deathless realm. And uh, when the, this, uh, this monastery was established, one of the teachings that Lumpur Sumedha would frequently give was uh, quoting the verse from the Dhammapada, verse 20, 21 from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. 
The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. And this is the kind of motto of uh, Amravati, also national anthem <laughs> of uh, Amravati. The, the path to the deathless. Um, that deathless quality of the mind, that 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 uh, awake, aware quality of the heart that knows the world but is not attached to the world, is not tied to the, the world of birth and death. In mindfulness is the path to that, that deathless quality. It, mindfulness is the, the path to the deathless. Heedlessness, if the mind that keeps attaching to the five khandhas, to the body, to feelings, perceptions, keeps believing in... The attaching to the uh, uh, and, and attaching to the personality, to our age, to our name, to our profession, our occupation, uh, our appearance, our possessions. Uh, you know, that the the more the mind attaches to the five khandhas, attaches to our feelings of comfort and discomfort, attaches to the perceptions uh, of what we call beautiful, what we call ugly attaches to our thoughts, our, our inspired thoughts, our, our unskillful thoughts, our emotions of happiness or depression or sadness or jealousy or excitement, uh, you know, all of the emotional states we can experience, the more that the mind attaches to those aspects of the five khandhas, attaching to time, attaching to personality, attaching to, to place, attaching to the way we measure things as big or small or long or short. Um, all these different uh, ways the mind attaches, then that's the path to death. The, you know, the mind is attaching to the world of beginnings and endings, of birth and death. If there's genuine mindfulness, if there's this embodying of this quality of awakened awareness, then that is the path to the deathless, to that which is free of, of birth and death, that which is utterly uh, peaceful, uh, utterly uh, boundless, uh, fully content and, and spacious, the heart which is uh, completely uh, uh, comfortable in the, in the presence of, uh, of all the different aspects of, of life. That, uh, uh, so mindfulness, that heedfulness, apamada, that is the, the way that we can or each one and every one of us can actualize this potential. And so I would encourage us to, uh, along with these beautiful decorations and the way that we can circumambulate uh, uh, the, the shrine uh, with our candles and flowers and incense, that uh, the, uh, the very heart of these expressions of devotion and gratitude, there is the intention, the effort to embody that quality of mindfulness, of apamada, truly heedful, awake, aware quality. So in this way we're fulfilling the, um, the teachings of the Buddha, we're fulfilling the, the uh, purpose for which the Buddha taught and worked so hard for, for so long and for which uh, purpose the, um, the, the sasana has existed and sustained itself uh, over these 26 centuries, then we're fulfilling the potential that we all have as human beings. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs>